1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the scienciest show that we can put together, I think. Uh, (laughs) My name is Chris and joining me as always is the um, iridescent Claire.
0: Oh, what an adjective. Thank you, Chris. Hello.
1: And have you got some um, beautiful science for us today?
0: Well, we're actually joined, we're lucky enough to be joined this week by Associate Professor Julie Old from Western Sydney University. And why I say lucky enough is I'm talking two things that I love and that I'm sure a lot of our listeners love. Citizen science, which you know is one of my favourite topics to talk about because it's a way for us all to get involved in science. And wombats. You know the giant cousins. Well, they're they're not giant, but the cousins of the koala. um, Exactly those furry-nosed and not so furry-nosed, burrowing, incredible, incredibly quick um, for how how like you know nuggety they are. Little marsupials.
1: One of the only two kinds of flightless bat in Australia. (laughs)
0: That's right. Um and Julie is has developed a citizen science project called WOMSAT. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um this uh, survey and analysis tool and um she's gonna tell us. I thought it was actually about, a satellite. Uh well it just rhymes with Wombat, WOMSAT. It's very okay, It makes
1: cool. it sound like a satellite though. Like it's a high tech kind of
0: mm, I mean, maybe. But it isn't okay. it's a citizen science tool and it's an app and um yeah, anyone out there who has wombats in their um life or likes to get out into the bush um should download womsat and um and also listen to this this interview with Julie because she's gonna she talks um all about uh what it is and how it can help wombats against some of the major threats that they are facing at the moment um yeah, so that's you know. Why wouldn't you listen Wombats and Citizen Science? It is Mm. wonderful here in Lost in Science. How about you, Chris? What have you got for our dear listeners?
1: Well, Claire, I have an interview myself. Another story with uh, some research involving hundreds of people working together, but they're not citizen scientists. They're actual scientists. I mean, not citizen scientists, they're actual scientists. but They are both
0: citizens and scientists, but they're not citizen scientists.
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll put it that way. So, have you heard about the reproducibility crisis in science or reproducibility problem in science?
0: No, what is that?
1: So, this is the idea that, you know, people try to reproduce the results of an earlier publication and they get different results essentially.
0: Right, okay. It is what it what it suggests on the box.
1: Yeah, so people worry that, you know, how can you trust research? You know what's going wrong here. Uh-huh. So, Today, I'm speaking to ecologist Hannah Fraser, a, um, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne, who has recently, with her collaborators, done a paper, sort of, it's kind of research on research, I think they call it, where they basically just get, they invited hundreds of people to analyze sets of data and see what results they come up with. And yeah, they found, I don't want to spoil it too much, but not everyone got the same result. Let's put it that way.
0: So maybe, well, interesting. That's very
1: interesting. Some implications for reproducibility? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm going to be talking to her about what it might mean and, yeah, whether this is a problem or not and what we need to do, I guess, to make science more, not necessarily more reliable, but to understand better what the how to use science. So that is two bits of um, interesting, I suppose, gonna go say kind of you know environmental ecological based research so if that's what you're into on with the show okay yes you're listening to Lost in Science and I am talking to hannah fraser who is a ecologist and postdoctoral researcher from the university of melbourne about uh some recent research she's been working on into well i guess research itself and uh maybe how it can go wrong um hannah thanks for joining us on austin science
2: yeah thank you so much for having me chris now can we
1: start by telling us a bit about how this got started
2: so there's been a bit of a movement in other fields of science where they've been looking into how reliable it is. It's sort of started in psychology and then it spread outward from there. And basically the idea is that they found that when you redo studies, uh, the results are different. So in somewhere between about 30 to 60% of cases, if you redo a study that you find that someone's published, you'll find a different result. And that's something that I really wanted to look into in ecology because it hasn't been looked into there yet. Um, and it's a little bit extra hard in ecology to get to the bottom of that because if you did redo the same study in the same place the next year, people don't really expect that you'd get the same results because you'd have you know, a different amount of rain or it's hotter or colder and everything is going to be responding differently. So this kind of study is really good because it takes a set data set and then has a look at how different people work with the data once it's been collected so it sort of dodges that question of yeah well i wouldn't expect it to find the same results because environmental factors
1: okay so you're talking about the ability to reproduce experimental results uh and so here the Uh, you're not reproducing the data, but you're trying to get people to reproduce the same results from the data. So what was the actual questions that you were trying to get them to answer?
2: So we had two questions and two sets. So one of them was how does grass cover affect the number of um, eucalyptus tree seedlings that you get? So how many new little trees grow? And the other one was how is blue tit, what's a type of bird, growth affected by the number of siblings there are. So that's how many little chicks there are in a nest and how that affects how fast the, the chicks grow.
1: Okay. Now th- these do sound like questions that I guess are, I mean, they're about the way that certain organisms behave. Um, but, and so you, you, are, you wouldn't get exactly the same data, but you'd think that the, the results, like the actual mechanisms, what's actually going on in terms of biology would be the same regardless, wouldn't you?
2: You'd expect that, but I suppose, um, if you sampled your data in a really weird year something strange might be going on like if it was in the middle of a flood all bets are off everything okay. might have been washed away or
1: that is that is this and that's happening more and more of course um yeah, exactly. as we as the, the climate change and everything okay and how did you go about getting people to uh attack these two questions
2: so i think it was it was funny timing it was just before the start of covid And basically, we sort of set up a whole situation where we had these questions and the data sets. And then we put out an open call at first on Twitter and then through a bunch of ecology um, mailing lists. And we ended up with hundreds and hundreds of people responding. I think it was a weird era in our lives where people had a lot of energy to do work but couldn't uh, leave their homes. (laughs) So they were keen to sit down on their computers and analyze things for us.
1: Excellent. So instead of doing a jigsaw puzzle, they were analyzing your data.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it was, was real, d-
1: it was real data, though, wasn't it?
2: Yes, yeah, real data collected by ecologists in the field. Okay, and did they...
1: So did it work? Did they get the same result, different results? What happened?
2: So they ended up with, in my opinion, concerningly different results. Uh, it was a little bit different from the eucalyptus, the, um, the gum tree one, as opposed to the, the blue-tit birds. Um, basically, in both situations, they found quite different results. Um, with some people finding that there was like a positive relationship, so more siblings would lead to having faster growth and in the birds and some finding the opposite of that, which is sort of more what you'd expect. More siblings would be less growth because you're competing for resources. Um, and then a number of people just finding no no distinguishable effect. Similarly, in the eucalyptus, we had a balance of people finding... A positive response so more grass more seedlings and some people finding a negative response more grass less seedlings and but in that case there was majority of people found not a whole lot going on okay
1: there's so much i want to i want to know here um i this is, these are like do sound like really startling and i suppose this is different to what we often think about with um you know studies that can't be reproduced we often think that it's because someone has collected data wrong or has deliberately done something wrong but in this case it is purely just analyzing existing data um for starters okay the first thing i really want to know is do you know the answer to these two questions like is there an actual answer have you done the analysis yourself is there a right answer
2: that's a question i get all the time and different uh, different collaborators of mine have a different answer to this, but from my perspective, there isn't it. There isn't one true answer. These are real biological systems, and the way you formulate your analysis is actually subtly different and usually equally valid. Different questions to answer the same overall question, okay. and you get different answers to those things. Uh, yeah, from my perspective, there's no one answer.
1: Okay, I mean it's it's telling that you and your um, collaborators don't agree. I mean that's I guess part of the problem. But I suppose what this is saying is that um, I mean one of the reasons why people get a different result is because it's not yeah, like you said, there's no there's no one answer. Um, it's it's messy data, and there's a number of ways it can be interpreted. Um. So what does this actually say about ecology then? And the ability to get reliable results in it I
2: think it's interesting I think the main problem it highlights is actually not a problem with the way we're doing research and it's a way it's a problem with the way we're presenting it So in a normal situation an ecologist goes out and they collect this fantastic data and they go away and they do a thousand tests on it and they write up a paper to be published that includes like three or four of those tests that tell a really neat story because that's the kind of thing that's acceptable at scientific journals. And it loses all of that nuance where they might have find, found a whole range of results that didn't make a really neat story um, but really should have been presented in, in the overall picture to help people understand the overall picture of what's going on rather than just the specific publishable story that we're trained to write that tells a cohesive story of your results. But actually, most of the time, when we're doing our analyses, we find a range of things, which is sort of what we're showing in our article, we find these range of results that could show different aspects of the question. Um, But when we write them up and publish them, and then when they go in the literature, it's only a subset, a small part of the whole story. So I think really the story here is that we need to change the way we're publishing and describing our results to include all of the work we're already actually doing. Okay. And also we need to temper the way we read articles to acknowledge the fact that they're only a part of the story and not a single source of truth.
1: Okay. So so I guess, I mean,
2: what the stuff you're talking about there
1: is, I suppose things inside the discipline itself that can be done to improve it. But Uh, You know, it also exists in in the world where these things need to be communicated to people who are not ecologists, who are not scientists working with you. For instance, the public, like I mentioned, climate change earlier and so much decisions about things like that depend on an understanding of what's going on ecologically. How do we get reliable results to report on? Or is it we need to make sure that that nuance is in every bit of uh, discussion about it?
2: Yeah, it's really tricky, particularly with policy questions like that, um, where there is a desire to have a really clean result so that you can make defensible policy decisions. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, it's a case of the body of evidence rather than finding something that's always true in all circumstances. Um, in my From my perspective, I think we just need to be a bit more comfortable with there being nuance and not being a single really clean right answer that doesn't really that doesn't really answer your question i guess the answer for me is we need to do more tests of everything yeah and then report and read all of the answers and then come to a considered measured conclusion not expected to just be clean all the time now,
1: there's a lot of discussion I guess around this kind of picture, though, in, in not just in college of course, about the reproducibility of science and the way that the, um, I guess, the mechanisms for uh, making sure quality control. Let's call it in science. Um, so there are things like peer review, um, and I should ask: has this paper passed peer review yet? This this study.
2: Ah, uh, so it's an interesting case. We're doing a um, it's a registered report, so. Right. The... The introduction and methods have been peer reviewed and past peer review. And then we did our results, and, and that's in review now. So the introduction and methods have been fully peer reviewed, and the rest of it hasn't yet. Okay. Um, interestingly, a component of our, sorry, part of this specific study that we're looking at was uh, we included a peer review part of it. So each of the analyses we got people to do were reviewed by other ecologists because we thought perhaps, as you might be suggesting, some of them were poor quality analyses that shouldn't have made the cut. Um, And we found that um, our review ratings had no, didn't correspond in any way to how different people's uh, results were from the average result. So um, in our instance, peer review wasn't performing a particularly good quality control mechanism, but I can't make more grand statement than that.
1: That's right. That's right. I was just curious whether that is part of the problem or or part of the solution, I suppose. Um, Are there any other solutions, I guess, in terms of the way that, um, I guess, analysis is performed or perhaps the way that people can collaborate with their peers in order to get more robust results?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a few things there. There are a number of projects in ecology and in other fields where people are starting to collaborate across a whole lot of different groups. So they'll work together in big groups and they'll each do analyses and then they'll compare and combine all of their results to get a bigger picture of what's going on. And that kind of thing can give us some really good, solid and reliable answers. So that's fantastic. And one of the other things, which is my particular hobby horse, is pre-registration. So the idea here is where they do this in medicine all the time, as you can imagine, for clinical trials. Before you actually do your study, you write down exactly what you're going to do, and then you publish that somewhere unchangeable so that people can check that you're actually reporting on all the things you did and you didn't just you know, keep doing analyses until mm. you found a story that um, looked like it a journal might take it.
1: It doesn't stop people from um, circumventing that process in, in medicine, but it does give you that extra confidence in a result if, they, if you know that they have registered beforehand and they have followed the rules.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't stop people from defrauding any systems, really. If people care enough, they'll try. Obviously, you could just do the study and then pre-register it and wait a certain amount of time and then submit it as if you'd done it beforehand. But I think, yeah, to some extent, you have to take people's word for it a bit. And this at least would stop people from accidentally drifting. Because um, I think most of the time, people aren't doing it a conscious and willful way. It's just it's the way we're taught to do science, basically. Yeah. Um, and there's some flaws in that.
1: Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you. It's been, um, I think we've run out of time now. It's been lovely talking to you about this. Um, it's, in, it's really fascinating research. And um, yeah, I hope that it is widely read and contributes to improving the, the reliability of science across the board, not just in ecology.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great being here today.
1: Cheers. That was Hannah Fraser from the University of Melbourne. Congratulations on your discovery which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science.
0: There is so much to love about the Australian wombat, from their gorgeous noses to their ingenious predator defences. They truly are an iconic Australian species. But wombat populations, like so many other marsupials, are under threat in the wild from disease, road impacts, and habitat destruction. Luckily, there is a citizen science app that aims to better understand these threats and inform researchers, wildlife carers, and the general public about wombat life and biology. And to chat to us about citizen science and all things wombat, we have with us this week Associate Professor Julie Old from Western Sydney University. Julie, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, thank you. So, Julie, what does the population of wombats around Australia look like? Well, we started with a really tough question, actually.
3: (laughs) Here I was thinking it was an easy (laughs) one. That's okay. Um, I have to say we have three different species of wombats. So, that's one of the reasons that it differs a lot. Um, there have been some studies um, conducted in South Australia on the southern hairy nosed wombat, and that used essentially satellite information to locate mm-hmm. burrows, and then the numbers were determined that way um, several thousand. Mm-hmm. We have a critically endangered species as well that's the northern hairy nosed wombat, and it is currently living in two uh, fenced areas to keep them safe from predators. Mm-hmm. Um, And they number about 315, a little, a few over. Um, So
0: they're
3: really, really rare, critically endangered. Mm. And, yeah, so that's the lowest numbers of one particular species. And then we have the other species. There's the common or bear-nosed wombat. And we really don't know how many there are, but um, they are the ones that are found on the east coast of Australia, down towards Tasmania as well, Victoria, New South Wales, a little bit of Queensland. And so that would be one of my projects that I really want to work out. How many wombats there are of that species
0: wow it's it's incredible to me that we don't have a um a good understanding of how many there are yeah it's it's really hard to to understand
3: you know how many wombats there really are, particularly for the bare nose one because you know, they live underground in burrows. Mm. They're obviously nocturnal, so we don't see them very often. Despite them being really large, you know, we we don't often see them out during the day. Usually they might be sick, which is unfortunate. Um, and of course, people see them, unfortunately, on the side of the road is roadkill as well. So it is actually hard to count them. Yeah. They hide really. They're very cryptic yeah. species.
0: Yeah. Talk us through some of the main threats that wombats are currently facing.
3: Well, I did speak about the the northern hairy-nosed wombat, the critically endangered one. So obviously the biggest threat to them is actually predators. They got down to about 20 individuals um, until they put wow. the fence up. So their numbers are increasing, so that's good. With the bare-nosed wombat, which is the one that I study the most, its main threats are, of course, habitat destruction, like most Australian mammals and, and animals. However, in our studies, we've found that roadkill is the big one and wow. our cycloptic mange as well. So tell us a bit about psychoptic mange. Psychoptic mange is found on about 150 to 200 species of mammal, including humans, which we know as scabies. Um, It's caused by a mite called psychoptic scabiae. Essentially, what that mite does to wombats and to people as well is it will burrow into the skin of the wombat. Initially, it might look like it's got lost a little bit of fur, might be really itchy, you 'll start to see it out during the day because it's trying to get a bit more nutrition than it would need. It spends a lot of time itching it's like dying from itchiness mm. and then their skin um it opens up and they end up dying from secondary infections if they
0: don't if they're not treated right um fatal. it it sounds so it is it is fatal and it sounds absolutely an awful way for a wild animal to die as well yeah absolutely horrendous yeah. You're one of the researchers who have developed a citizen science app for wombats, and it's called WOMSAT. I love that name. Can you tell us a little bit about it? WOMSAT,
3: it stands for Wombat Survey and Analysis Tool. It has a big brother called Turtlesat. So WOMSAT is a citizen science project where everybody can log their sightings of wombats. So it's really hard for us to get out into the field and look and observe where wombats are all the time, you know, throughout the whole of Australia. So we designed this app so that everybody could get on board and help find out information about wombats. Obviously our key things were roadkill and sarcoptic mange, but other threats as well. So people can enter their, their data when they see a wombat, even if they see a burrow, because that's important mm. information that tells us about where wombats are.
0: Right. So this is an app that um, people can download? Yes,
3: on iPhones and Android phones or just the website as well. Yep. Wow,
0: incredible. And um, every time that, say, citizen scientist is out in the field, either seeing a burrow or roadkill or a live wombat or a wombat, you know, potentially with a mange infection, uh, what's the sort of process that that they go through, and then where does the where does the data sort of flow through to? Okay,
3: so the best way to go about doing it now is to just snap a photo with your smartphone. Um most people have a smartphone, so that's really good. Um, previously, we had trouble with it. Often wombats are in areas where there's no internet or phone coverage. No. Um, so there were issues with that, but now uh, we can, take our photo and, you know, smartphones are really, really smart and they can uh, record the information about the location where that photo is taken. So when the person gets back into coverage or internet um, range, they can upload that information via that photo of where that sighting was um, using the app or website.
0: You're actually using the citizen science data to publish journal articles that you've released. What, what have been your findings? WOMSAT's been going since
3: 2015 is when we launched and we've had over 23,000 sightings that have been submitted mostly by citizen scientists, which is absolutely fantastic. So we've, and everybody can go online and have a look and see where the wombats are. So it's not something we've got, you know, hidden away somewhere. Please go and check out the website, have a look at it. But with that data, we've analysed it and it's enabled us to find, for example, roadkill hotspots. And that means that, you know, there's certain locations where lots of wombats have been getting killed. And so we can, um, or in combination with managers, road managers, we can target those areas and put mitigation strategies in place so that obviously the wombats don't get hit and, you know, people don't have car accidents. And then with sarcoptic mange as well, the data collected over a long period of time allows us to look at seasonal changes um, mm-hmm. and pinpoint things or you know, habitat or seasons or conditions that might mean that there's going to be an increase in sarcoptic mange incidence. So we really don't know much about that. But one of the key findings that we did find was that it looks like after a heavy rainfall period, we see more sarcoptic mange. And that's pretty interesting because when we were doing our, our field studies, obviously in a much smaller area, Uh, we also saw that that was the case as well.
0: So this is sort of adding extra data and analysis and understanding to sort of how you can best support wombat populations with sarcoptic mange then?
3: Oh, absolutely, because like I said, there is there's no way we can cover the whole of Australia 24-7. And so scientists need the help of citizen scientists to help get on board and log that information. The more information and data we have across Australia, the the better um, informed we can be. Um, and that that helps
0: us and it helps wombats as well. So, um, yeah, just thinking about sort of uh, this citizen science tool, I guess, you know, it's so important for um for an education point in in an education point of view scientific but also I guess there are a lot of community groups and wildlife carers who are working within their own area why is it so important to feed into sort of the one database
3: so it's really important to have all the information in one area because you know otherwise we have to go around and get little bits here there and everywhere And it gives us the big picture. This is big picture wombat stuff. It's not, you know, little nitty-gritty niche science. This is big picture science. It's fantastic.
0: And um, with this sort of citizen science information, um, are you looking to inform government policies around sort of wombat management?
3: Yeah, so one of the things, like I said, we want to do is get that information about roadkill out to you know people that build the roads to inform them about you know where the wombats are, you know, build better roads to make sure that we've got less roadkill happening. We know that for example, fences don't work very well because wombats are bulldozers of the bush. So there's got to be other mit- mitigation strategies that we can try to, to save the wombats in those particular areas. As well as that, we do one day I'm a comparative immunologist. That's my research background. Um and I became more interested in wombats because I saw a wombat with psychoptic mange. So that's how I got involved in this research to start off with. And, you know, helping helping the wombat, which is a fantastic animal, and seeing them die like that is absolutely horrendous. And um, ideally, we would like to have a silver bullet that, you know, we could treat a wombat with you know, with no problems at all. At the moment, we're still learning a lot about the best ways to treat wombats. So this is one of the advantages as well as the app. So people that are treating wombats for mange can actually go in and log their their treatment regimes and mm-hmm. help to record that information as well. So in the longer term, you know, they've got their record. They can just snap a photo, upload it. And also it tells other carers in the area as well, which areas are being treated and which ones are not. So it's a real advantage for wildlife carers because they do spend an enormous amount of time and effort and uh-huh. not to mention money saving our wildlife. So something that can benefit them um, benefits everybody.
0: For everyone out there who
3: needs a weekly wombat dose, um, tell us about Wombat Wednesday. Well, part of our WOMSAT strategy, I suppose, was because, you know, I did used to get a lot of questions about what is a wombat and people had visions of wombats flying. Okay, I suppose because the word bat at the end of wombat. What um, was this from so, overseas, Julie? Uh this- yeah, some some people new to Australia, but yeah, a lot yeah. of people they just don't see them. They don't really have a concept of how large they are or anything like mm. that. So, you know, wombats, um, if you haven't seen one, they're 40 kilos or so, the big ones. Um, you know, big teeth, big claws, they can run forty kilometers an hour like they are fantastic little beasts so the image of them you know trying to get off the ground and fly with wings encouraged me to you know get the the wombat word out and inform people about what a wombat was and you know people are often very familiar with koalas um, habitat destruction with for koalas and obviously diseases like chlamydia but people aren't as informed about wombats particularly psychoptic mange. So one of those things that we wanted to get that information out about wombats was to create hashtag Wombat Wednesday. And I'm really glad to say that it's really been taken up by all sorts of government agencies, wildlife carers, Instagram. Go on there if you want to check out some fantastic wombats. There's some fantastic um, pictures and stories out there about wombats.
0: What's next on your research list for wombat conservation? Oh, my list is very long, very long
3: indeed. <laughs> um, there's so many things we really don't know. I mean, obviously, um, we want to investigate that data some more, you know, look at distribution and abundance, which you pointed out. Absolutely. We don't know how many bare-nosed wombats they are. So that's a really tricky question. I want to help carers and other people understand the psychoptic mange better. Hopefully we can, you know, organize some or develop some better uh,
0: treatment strategies and as well as that, you know, work on some strategies to reduce roadkill as well. Just before we go, I have to ask you as a wombat researcher, wombat expert in the field, what is your favourite wombat fact?
3: It's a really tough one. um, Wombats do have buns of steel, which they (laughs) use to protect themselves from predators, and they have continuously growing teeth. But wow. if you ever get a trivia question,
0: probably the coolest thing to know is that they have cube-shaped poop. <laughs> I mean, that's a story for another day. We'll have to have you back on Lost in Science for that one, Julie. Thank you so much for the warm chat. And so wonderful to hear about the citizen science achievements. And a big shout out to all the incredible carers, wildlife carers and wombat carers out there. And remember, wherever you are, you can check out and download WOMSAT and do your bit for conservation of this incredible Australian animal. Julie, thank you again.
1: And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings, so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost Lost in Science!